Just a quick word from our sponsor, Pattern Life. I am so excited to get the word out about Pattern because one thing I learned the hard way was disability insurance. For me, researching insurance got complicated, time-consuming, and for me, I just got overwhelmed and trusted that my employer had some type of disability insurance, but boy, was I wrong in terms of what those details entailed. Pattern is great because it's actually geared towards clinicians and doctors and has helped thousands of doctors find and understand the insurance they're buying. You just click on the link in the show notes. I did this the other day. It takes two minutes to write your info, request quotes to compare them, or schedule a quick 15-minute phone call and buy risk-free. So request your quote today at patternlife.com so you can use your time better, save money, and be prepared for the unknowns of the future. Don't make mistakes like me and be confident that your family and income are protected no matter what the future holds. And with that, let's get back into the episode. This is Dr. Marty Freed, Dr. Shreya Trivedi, and Dr. Carrie Blum. This is the Core IM Five Pearls podcast brought to you by Clinical Correlations, bringing you high yield, evidence based pearls. Today, we are talking all about proton pump inhibitors. Special thanks to Dr. Peter Stenich from the Division of Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition at The Ohio State University Medical Center. Dr. Stenich is the Director of Intestinal Neoplasia and Hereditary Polyposis Section within his division. Dr. Stenich also tweets under the handle at Doc Stanich. So if you're on Twitter, I definitely recommend to give him a follow. All right, let's get started on the pearls we'll be covering. Test yourself by pausing after each of the five questions. Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains. Pearl one, adverse effects of PPI. What should you be monitoring for in patients on long-term PPI? Pearl two, PPI deprescribing and treatment alternatives. What are some strategies to get your patients off of PPIs? Pearl 3. Mechanism of histamine 2 receptor antagonists. How do H2 blockers work, and how can that explain why they might not be as effective as PPIs? Pearl 4. Patient education on PPI use. If your patient must be on a PPI, then how can you advise them to get the maximum benefit? And Pearl 5, monitoring and follow-up. How do you manage ongoing symptoms in a patient on a PPI? All right, so a quick disclaimer before we get started. In this episode, we assume more serious pathology has already been considered and ruled out, either by history or more advanced testing. And unless otherwise specified, in this podcast, we are primarily referring to the management of GERD. All right, let's get started with a case. Carrie, I think you had someone in mind when you were thinking of the pearls for this podcast. I do. Thanks, Shreya. My patient was a 74-year-old man who had seen several providers in clinic. He had multiple medical problems, including CKD, osteoporosis, some early cognitive impairment, and a problem list with its own table of contents. You guys know what I mean. Oy vey. Anyway, he'd been on omeprazole 20 milligrams for years and years, but from the past bunch of notes, I didn't even know he had reflux. Turns out he hadn't had symptoms in a long time. Jeez, there is a lot to unpack there. Yeah, I definitely feel you, Carrie. There's been so many times where, more often than not, PPIs are on my patient's medication list and I haven't started them myself. So where'd you start with this patient, Carrie? 
So first, I had a Tums myself because these elderly, complicated patients can give even the best of us a bit of heartburn. Oh, no. <laughs> but seriously, I spent the first visit or two just getting a handle of his medical history, current and ongoing problems, and medications. Such an incrementalist. I love it, Carrie. <laughs> I realized pretty quickly that the PPI should probably be an early target to discontinue because he hadn't had GERD symptoms in a long time, and I was concerned the PPI could be contributing to some of his medical problems. All right, so let's pause there and talk about some of the PPI-induced medical problems you were worried about in this patient specifically, but also the other side effects we should all be familiar with. Right, so when I think about adverse effects of PPI, I divide them into two big buckets, those related to malabsorption and those related to infection. Nice. I love having schema to organize ideas. All right, but Carrie, here's the thing. I've heard about chronic kidney disease associated with PPIs, and that doesn't really seem like either malabsorption or infection. So where does this fall into that classification? Well, I should admit, there's also likely a third miscellaneous category of conditions that are associated with PPI use, but the mechanism is very sketchy. CKD is in this category. It's weakly but statistically associated with PPI use in observational studies, but the absolute risk comes out to only about one to three additional cases in 1,000 patient years. Hmm, interesting. I think dementia also falls in this third miscellaneous bucket. For sure. Early studies also showed an association between PPIs and dementia, but more recent studies have failed to replicate these findings. Ah, nice. That's really good to know. So how did I know, Carrie, you were going to go and make things a little bit more confusing with this third category? Why don't we jump back on track with the two buckets that you were talking about initially, the malabsorption and infection. So with the first one, what are the big issues with malabsorption? Well, there's three main complications related to malabsorption. Vitamin B12 deficiency, low magnesium levels, and osteoporosis. B12. Okay, I'm starting to see the connection with your patient, Carrie. B12 levels are often checked as the initial workup of reversible causes of dementia. That's definitely true. And the combination of initial memory complaints in my patient and the long-term PPI use led me to send off levels, which were very low. I started repleting B12 right away. All right. And did his memory get any better? Well, not exactly. It looks like his cognitive issues are maybe a bit more complicated. And like many patients, probably multifactorial. But I'm glad we caught the B12 deficiency before it did become a problem. Ah, uh, that, that just would have been a little bit too perfect, right, if it, the B12 fixed him right up. But anyway, we should probably get into the evidence behind vitamin B12 malabsorption in the setting of PPI use. Well, there's pretty strong evidence that PPIs diminish B12 absorption. But the absolute excess risk of developing vitamin B12 deficiency is not huge, something on the order of 3 to 4 cases per 1,000 person years, translating to a relative increase of 60 to 70% over patients not on PPIs. Hmm. A well-designed randomized control trial gives us a pretty convincing case for causation. Healthy volunteers underwent modified chilling tests both before and after initiating PPI therapy. The authors showed that taking just 20 milligrams of omeprazole decreases B12 absorption by three to fourfold. All right, so what's the, what's the takeaway here, Carrie? Well, my practice now is to monitor patients' B12 levels about annually if they're on PPIs. I should say, listeners, 
we are in a guideline-free zone here. We would actually love to hear what your practice is regarding B12 monitoring in patients who are on long-term PPIs. Anyway, Carrie, what's the next stop here on our malabsorption express? That would be hypomagnesemia coming right up. I actually personally shorten that to hypomag. It kind of sounds a little cooler on rounds. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So then what's the evidence behind this quote-unquote hypomag in our PPI users? The absolute risk of low magnesium in individual patients is likely small, but the association is convincing and PPIs even carry an FDA warning regarding hypomagnesemia. A meta-analysis of nine studies confirmed that patients on long-term PPI therapy have about a 50% greater relative risk for low magnesium levels than a control group. We'll link that paper in the show notes. And the other big thing to remember is that low magnesium does predispose to other electrolyte abnormalities like hypocalcemia. Ah, hypocal. So hypomag may predispose to hypocal. Right, which is actually okay. a nice transition <laughs> into the third major malabsorptive issue, osteoporosis and fracture. That was smooth, Dr. Blum. Thank you. Thank you. But yeah, I will say the mechanism is a bit hand-wavy, involving impaired calcium absorption and possibly also direct osteoclast inhibition. But a convincing association does exist. Oh yeah? Lay it on us. Well, the best data comes from the nurses' health study. You guys know that long-term prospective cohort study? Mm -hmm. Well, the authors yep. observed a 35% relative increase in the risk of hip fracture after two plus years of PPI use. The thing is, this association was driven almost entirely by smokers, and when only never smokers were considered, no statistically significant association was detected. All right. I mean, I guess if this were Mythbusters, I'd definitely label the risk of osteoporosis plausible, though I'm not sure we have enough data yet to confirm it. Right, I'd have to agree. Maybe I'll just be on the lookout more for osteoporosis in my patients who have that combined hit of smoking and being on PPIs. Perfect. So the three adverse effects of PPIs in this malabsorption bucket are vitamin B12 and magnesium deficiencies, as well as osteoporosis, which is due at least in part to calcium malabsorption. All right, let's move on to our next and last bucket of adverse effects of PPI. That's infections. Well, this is much smaller and really limited to C. diff and other forms of colitis. Yeah, you know, I've heard about C. diff infections and PPIs. Let's first talk about the data and then get to the mechanism. Again, the data is all observational, but pretty strong associations exist here. A 2012 meta-analysis of 42 studies showed the pooled odds ratio of C. diff infection in PPI users was 1.74, with the confidence interval going from about 1.5 to 2.9. Okay, so that's, that's real. All right, so what about data in recurrent C. diff infection? You betcha. Uh, I don't have the numbers offhand, but there's also an association with higher rates of recurrent C. diff. Wow. I mean, C. diff is something we see all the time on the inpatient side, and I really never think about addressing PPI use on the discharge med rec. It is definitely something I'm going to think about going into the future. Yeah, for sure. And is there any thought about the mechanism there between PPIs and C. diff? Well, the authors of the meta-analysis propose it could be due to the loss of the protective effect of gastric acid or maybe some changes in the gut microbiota. All right. Well, I, for one, never argue when someone suggests microbiota as an answer to any medical question. It's kind of like the cytokine wild card. Sure, fine. I can't argue with it, so I guess I'll buy it. 
Right. Cytokines are always the right answer. Okay, let's take a second to review this section. Major adverse effects of PPIs can be thought of as in two major buckets, malabsorptive side effects and infection. Within malabsorption, we should be on the lookout for B12 and magnesium deficiency as well as osteoporosis. And then within the infection bucket, C. diff is the major culprit. And there's the miscellaneous bucket that includes weaker associations like CKD and dementia. So now that we've laid out our argument against PPIs, what are some strategies for getting our patients off PPIs? That's a great question. Unfortunately, discontinuing PPI therapy can be difficult because of rebound symptoms. There's no one-size-fits-all strategy, and there's little to no evidence guiding us on this question. Right, but there are some strategies that can help us de-escalate therapy. First, when we do prescribe, write a short duration of the PPI therapy and do not give a ton of refills. Often, two to four weeks of PPI may be enough and set a close follow-up appointment. And please, prepare your patient for what to expect when stopping PPI therapy. For example, patients often do experience a worsening of reflux symptoms, but emphasize the positive. You're saving them from all the unwanted side effects we just reviewed. And absolutely make sure to emphasize lifestyle modifications. These are sometimes obvious, but can actually work as good as the medications themselves. I know I have my own shtick when I counsel patients on heartburn. What do you guys tell patients when they report symptoms of dyspepsia? Once, of course, you've convinced yourself that there is nothing more serious going on. Right. I definitely have my little GERD song and dance I do where I go through with my patients. Oh, sorry, burp. Um, (laughs) I'm having a little reflex myself, guys. Okay. So I definitely have a little song and dance I go through also with my patients about not eating two hours before bedtime, staying up right after they eat, weight loss, things like that. In addition to lifestyle changes, I use other classes of medications as rescue options if symptoms flare. What other rescue meds do you guys use? Yeah, so the simple stuff like Tums, Maalox. For sure. These include aluminum hydroxide, magnesium hydroxide, and calcium carbonate. Right. I kind of just think of these meds as chalk that coats the stomach. That's right. I mean, they're all bases that neutralizes the acid after symptom onset, which is actually a huge disadvantage in that they don't prevent symptoms. Right. But since they do work fast, they are fantastic rescue meds. Exactly. What other medication classes do you guys use? Right. So I guess I also think about histamine receptor blockers like ranitidine, which goes by the trade name Zantac, or famotidine, which is uh, the trade name Pepsid. So let's review. Some strategies to take patients off of PPIs include short, finite prescriptions to begin with, managing expectations, and using rescue medications. Other non-PPA options include antiacids that simply neutralize the stomach and histamine receptor blockers. All right, you know, I have to say, guys, some of my patients never find H2 blockers as effective in controlling dyspepsia as PPIs do. And there's a good reason why. So let's take a step back to remember the biology behind acid secretion. Sorry to get all basic science on you guys, and no pun intended (laughs) there, but understanding physiology can really make the pharmacology less mystifying. All right. All right, Carrie, we will allow it. So we have a great graphic of the physiology that we're about to review that might be helpful to follow along with. It's posted on all of our social media accounts. Great. So remember that gastric acid is secreted by what cells? The uh, stomach cells. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Am I but wrong? More specifically, 
Parietal cells. Ah, parietal cells. They have the hydrogen-potassium ATPase, otherwise known as... The proton pump. That's right. The infamous proton pump, purveyor of agita, head honcho of heartburn, the regal ruler of the reflux regime, the... You guys get my point. I was fully ready to let you keep going there, Carrie. Yeah, but tell us more about the proton pump. I for sure will, Shreya, but you'll have to wait until Pearl 4 for the specifics. For now, let's remind ourselves, what stimulates secretion of acid from parietal cells? Right, so there's a direct stimulation from gastrin itself. Yep, two more. All I know is that I'm hungry as heck right now, and I just saw a hilarious cheeseburger meme on Reddit, and now my stomach is pretty much just screaming at me. Exactly, Marty. Wait, what? So when your mouth waters and stomach churns, it's in response to a visual stimulus. And a lot of that is mediated by the vagus nerve. That's the second major mechanism of parietal cell activation, the old vagus. Ah, nice. I totally knew that. And the last activating signal is paracrine signaling, mediated by histamine from the enterochromaffin-like cells in the stomach. Remember those dudes from histology? Yeah, it's all coming back now. Ugh, like a bad case of C. diff. (laughs) All right, so I'm guessing that histamine receptor blockers target this last pathway? Yep. Understanding those three activating pathways for acid, what's the major drawback to the H2 blocker medication class? Oh, okay. All right. It's all coming together now, Carrie. I see what you mean. So renatidine, famotidine are only blocking one of those activating signals that results in parietal cell activation. The other two pathways are still completely intact. Right. And even worse, over time, the histamine receptors become upregulated, which causes tachyphylaxis, a big word that just means diminishing returns after a while. This can occur after just a few weeks. And for the record, H2 blockers are also not without their own side effects. In fact, they share many with PPIs, though many to a lesser degree. Right. Thanks for pointing that out, Marty. So to sum up, histamine antagonists only block paracrine parietal cell activation. There are still two more ways that the parietal cell becomes activated. The vagus. (laughs) And gastrin. Yes. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals right to your door ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital's cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouthwatering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With fact, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash coriam50. Use the code coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code coriam50 at factormeals.com slash coriam50. All right. So guys, after all this reflux talk, I have a problem. 
you're telling me I'm on like my fourth tums of this episode. These things are delicious. Oh man, Marty. I mean, yes, they are quite good, but no, seriously. So I'm all on board with adverse side effects, how to de-prescribe. But as long as my patients are on these PPIs, I want to make sure they're getting the maximum benefit of this drug. Good point, Shreya. And that brings me back to my favorite topic, physiology. I mean, this guy just really doesn't miss a beat. Nope. <laughs> but I did promise Shreya more on the proton pump, so if you'll allow me... Oh, I insist. So where did I leave off? Uh, that's right, the pump itself. So as we said before, PPIs work by blocking the final common pathway of all acid secretion. But I ask you, how do they do that? So I used to have this idea of the PPI molecules just kind of mosing on down to the stomach after being swallowed and kind of like plugging up the proton pump. This is super interesting. PPIs actually take the back door to shut down the proton pump. They first enter the circulation and then they enter the parietal cell. From there, they're secreted through the pump itself, where in acidic conditions only, they will irreversibly bind to the outside of the pump, rendering it inactive forever. That's why PPIs have a such long duration of action. Well, I see PPIs have quite a long journey to that pump. I, like Marty, thought it was just going to go down to the stomach and plug up the pump. No, it has quite a journey, and disappointingly, it sometimes gets stopped abruptly at the last step, like right before the PPI has a chance to work. Hmm, so that makes sense, because in order for the PPI to be secreted into the gastric lumen, it needs to bind to the proton pump, and the parietal cell must be activated first. Right, so the pump is a protein that hangs out on vesicles when the parietal cell is resting, and then when the activation signal comes along, the vesicle migrates to the luminal membrane. Once here, it shells protons out into the gastric lumen, which creates a more acidic environment. Yep. And this physiology explains why PPI should be taken before a meal. They need a little bit of time to float around the circulation, looking for the parietal cell. And if things are working perfectly, then right at the meal time, when the pump is active and the GI lumen's acidic, the drug will be in the right place and the cell will be ready for that spicy tandoori chicken. Right. So how long before a meal should a PPI be taken? Ideally, about 15 to 30 minutes. Despite having a long duration of action due to suicide inhibition of the pump, PPIs have a short half-life in circulation, so taking the PPI right at the right time is pretty important. You guys want the drug to be in circulation when the parietal cell is activated. All right, so timing's important, but how important is it really? I mean, it's easy for us to say, hey, take, make sure you take the pill 15, 30 minutes before the meal, but, you know, for some patients, it can be kind of hard. Well, that's true, but the importance of timing was shown quite elegantly in a study of healthy volunteers. And you guys know what I mean when I say healthy volunteers, right? Med, Med students. students. Yes. <laughs> Probably. Not sure for this study, but in general, unfortunately, yes. Anyway, these healthy subjects underwent continuous esophageal pH monitoring for two separate periods of seven days each. During period one, a PPI was taken 15 minutes before breakfast. During period two, the PPI was taken at the same time in the morning, but the patients fasted until at least noon. The authors found that when PPIs were taken shortly before the meal, there was about a 60% reduction in the duration of acidic conditions. Yeah, 60% is a pretty big deal. All right, one more question for you, Carrie. Does it matter which meal the PPI should be taken before? So like, does 15 minutes before lunch or dinner work just as well as 15 minutes before breakfast? Well, glad you asked, Shreya. Ideally, the PPI should be taken before the first meal of the day. 
This is because the longer one fasts prior to eating, the more proton pumps are activated in response to a meal. Think of it like this. Overnight, while you are fasting, your proton pumps are just building up in the cells for a morning time proton ambush. Well, Marty, if you forget to take your PPI before those bacon and eggs, at least you'll have the good old antiacids to rescue you. All right, I'm on like tum number nine here. I really can't stop. Let's review this section on patient counseling. The main takeaway here is that patients who must be on PPIs really should take it 15 to 30 minutes before breakfast. This ensures that the medication is in the serum and ready to work once the parietal cell is activated and the proton pumps migrate to the luminal surface where the PPI will be secreted and block acid secretion. All right, so let's finish out our PPI discussion with some management issues. So what do you do when your patient's still reporting symptoms while they're on a PPI? Sir, step away from the sriracha. Put the franks down and take three steps back from the chili pepper flakes. <laughs> well, yes, obviously kind of reviewing diet and medication timing is pretty important here. But like any other situation in medicine, when the plan isn't working as well planned, we should reconsider the diagnosis. Right. Super important. PPIs are effective at reducing acid secretion in nearly all patients when taken correctly. I know we did our fair share of PPI bashing in the beginning of the episode, but patients and doctors are like, continue to use them because they do work and by and large are safe. Right. That is a good point. I mean, how many times can you guys remember that an entire class of drugs went from prescription to over-the-counter? Yeah, not many. So I guess what we're trying to say here is if symptoms truly continue through PPI therapy and the drug is being taken correctly, i.e. 30 minutes before meals, preferably before breakfast, we should have a low threshold to refer to endoscopy. Yeah, I mean, that kind of goes back to the disclaimers to start the podcast. PPI failure might be an indication that we're just not dealing with straightforward GERD. And endoscopy can look for things that PPIs won't treat, like hiatal hernias or malignancy. So true. So let's say that the upper scope comes back benign with the presumptive diagnosis remaining GERD. What medication options are available at this point? Yeah, so I've seen GI double up on the PPI. Yep, and you can double it up in two ways. You can make the dosing twice daily, or you can make it a double dose in the morning to maintain once daily dosing. And if patients still have symptoms, you can pump it all the way up to double dose BID, which is considered max dosing. Wow. So that would be like 80 milligrams of pantoprazole twice daily. Exactly. What about using H2 blockers plus PPI? Is that too much? Well, the addition of the H2 blockers can be considered once the patient's maxed out on PPIs, but I'd really only do this if there's actual evidence of continued acid reflux on esophageal pH testing, because realistically, the potential benefit of the H2 blocker is likely slim. And I guess for the reasons mentioned above, I would still have them take the PPI first in the morning, 30 minutes before meals, to ensure that the parietal cells are activated. Then you can add the renitidine later because it's faster acting and not reliant on parietal cell activation. I guess it actually prevents parietal cell activation, right? Yeah, that's a great point, Marty. Yeah, true. All right, so let's review. A diagnostic timeout is warranted for patients who continue to experience symptoms despite being on PPI therapy and taking it correctly. Have a low threshold for further testing, be it upper endoscopy or pH testing, to rule out other etiologies. And in a true case of refractory reflux, PPI dosing can be increased both by adding an evening administration or doubling the dose. 
This four times dosing is considered max therapy and adding additional H2 blocker can be considered, but the additional benefit is likely minimal. All right, so let's recap the five pearls for this podcast. Pearl one, the major adverse effects of PPIs can be thought about in two major buckets, malabsorptive side effects and infection. Within the malabsorption bucket, we have vitamin B12 and magnesium deficiencies, as well as osteoporosis. Remember, that's due to calcium malabsorption, at least in part. Within that infectious bucket, we're looking at C. diff as the major culprit here. And remember that third miscellaneous bucket, right? These are the weaker associations, things like CKD and dementia. Pearl 2, some strategies to take patients off PPIs include short, finite prescriptions to begin with, managing expectations, and using rescue medications. Other non-PPI options include antiacids that simply neutralize the stomach and histamine receptor blockers. Pearl 3. For our daily dose of physiology, we reviewed the mechanism of activation of parietal cells to explain why histamine receptor blockers aren't as effective as PPIs. While PPIs block the final common pathway of all acid secretion, histamine receptor blockers only stop one of three parietal cell activating signals. Pearl 4. To help your patient experience maximum benefit from PPIs, make sure they take it 15 to 30 minutes before breakfast. This ensures that the medication is in the serum and ready to work once the parietal cell is activated. And finally, for Pearl 5, remember to reconsider the simple diagnosis of GERD if the patient's still having ongoing symptoms while taking PPI therapy. Have a low threshold for further testing, whether it be upper endoscopy or pH testing, to rule out other diagnosis. And in, in true refractory reflux, PPI dosing can be increased by adding an evening administration or doubling the dose. All right, thanks for listening. If you have any questions, please email us at coreimpodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at at coreimpodcast. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at coreimpodcast. Opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of NYU or other affiliated institutions. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, see your own healthcare provider for medical care. All right, thanks for joining us. See you guys next Wednesday. Take care. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.